Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, this brings back some memories uh, of Easter two years ago. See, two years ago, almost to the day, I packed my bags and fled from the States because of the oncoming COVID restrictions. I made it back to the UK and we went into lockdown and we couldn't get out. I mean, we weren't even allowed out of our houses except for just a quick exercise um, outside. So I called up John, he was in Australia, I was in the UK and we said, what are we gonna do now? I'd just moved in with my parents-in-law and my future wife and uh, this is where we started actually broadcasting our first ever creation research live programs. It was where we first ever did our live Easter sermons. It's where we first started doing things like fossil of the day and all these kind of little things which led on to creation conversations. Which, welcome to by the way, it's our Easter special. Now, two years ago, we started recording and broadcasting an Easter special series. John from lockdown in Australia, me from lockdown here in the UK. And we would do things like put out a special uh, sermon followed by a little short live video. Uh, It worked really well, even with the little amount of knowledge that we really knew what we were doing or anything. But it worked. So first of all, a reminder to go back there and actually watch all of our Easter special sermons for 2020 on Facebook. They're there, they're free to watch. There's some great content in there. The second one is you've probably realized this is a slightly different creation conversations. Yes, we're not technically live. We've probably got one or two of our team monitoring the live chat. So send your questions in because remember we keep a tab on the questions and anything that we don't get to cover, uh, whether it's not a live one like today or whether we don't have time to cover it on a live broadcast, we'll keep those questions and use it for our next Q&A session, which is coming up in a week or two's time. What we're gonna do today, though, is we're bringing you some of our greatest hits from the past, if you want to put it that way, from our Easter sermons and a little bit of a deeper look into the who and why and what of Easter. I mean, if you just want our little uh, artifact or museum feature, I've got a wonderful little bronze coin here. I mean, when you come up close and have a look at it, it's absolutely delightful. It's got some words around the edge and it's got like a little shepherd's staff. Um, what is it? Well, it's actually the coin of Pontius Pilate. You see, only very few uh, governors of a region or an area were given permission to actually stamp their own coins, and Pontius Pilate was one of them. In fact, out of all of the Judean, Palestinian um, governors, only three of them were ever allowed to mint their own coins, two of which are mentioned in the Bible. One of them is Felix, mentioned in the Book of Acts. The other one is Pontius Pilate. So yes, get behind our museum ministry, continue to support the acquisition of fabulous artifacts and fossils such as this, and we can really start telling people the truth of the gospel evidenced by the fossils and the artifacts and everything else. Well, for our first segment today, what we're going to do is uh, have a look back at a sermon which I did for church in the middle of lockdown. So we didn't even zoom in, I pre-recorded it all myself, but it's in an important background, an important basis for our Easter special uh, 2020 broadcast, um, because what it deals with 
is the who is Jesus Christ question and what is the connection between Jesus Christ, creation and fossils? That's where we're going to start with, then we're going to have a listen to John Mackay talking about who Jesus Christ is in the view of the Creator and that important link to Easter and then we'll finally have a look at a chat between myself and John which went out a little while ago specifically looking at the joy of Easter and the, uh, the message that it really gives. We're talking about fossils and we're also talking about the creator and we're talking about Jesus Christ as the creator. Oh, we have a dinosaur fossil here and you see I've dug up dinosaur fossils from all over the world. I studied paleobiology which is the study of fossils but specifically how the creatures that are now the fossils used to live. So really what you're taught is that you can go to these wonderful rock formations all around the world, you can dig up fossils and you're supposed to be able to build an ecosystem out of them. Now that's not always the case, it's usually a big mess but that's what I studied going through university. I also I worked as a zookeeper for six years and uh, I got to do qualifications in zoology which helped me sort of understand how the living creatures lived and believe me when you understand how the living creatures lived it helps you very much work out how the dead creatures lived. It's very very important and very very useful to be able to have a good balance of all of these sciences. But as I mentioned in the little introduction to me earlier uh, our main focus with creation research which I'm now the director of the UK ministry is not just making people creationists. It's not just convincing people that the word of God is true at the beginning. It's convincing people that the whole of the word of God is true from beginning to end. And it's encouraging people who are already Christians, who are already believers, to worship Jesus Christ in the fullest. Because worship comes from an old word called worth-ship. It's giving somebody the worth that they're due. And you have to understand that Jesus Christ is not just our saviour, he's also our creator. Oh, don't believe me? Well, he's our sustainer as well. Have a look at what it says in 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4 verses 42. Then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, Give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, What? Shall I set it before one hundred men? He said again, Give it to the people that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate, and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Now you may have got a little bit of familiarity with this uh, little portion of scripture here. It sounds very much like John chapter 6. Oh, John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Yes, there's a lot of parallel there between the miracle that was going on here, the feeding 100 men with just, I like the way that the New King James says it, this man brought the man of God, that's the prophet Elisha, some gifts in his knapsack. This was a small little gift and he gave it to the man of God and the man of God said, here, take this to the people that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. And they did. They took it and they ate and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Just like when Jesus fed the 5,000. Oh, it wasn't just 5,000. It was 5,000 men plus their wives plus their children. That's a lot of people. But you shouldn't really be surprised. The word of the Lord that is mentioned here in 2 Kings chapter 4 is the very same word of the Lord that fed the 5,000. 
Jesus Christ. Oh, have a look at John chapter 1. Because you see, there is a very important lesson that we can learn from the Gospel of John. And I love the way that it puts it in the beginning here. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. Ah, you see there's some kind of a parallel between John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. I'm sure you know of it. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Ah, John is using Genesis as a scaffolding to introduce his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without the Word, nothing was made that was made. Very close to Genesis. But you do realise in Genesis, when God said, in the beginning God created, that word God there is not a name. It's a position. Elohim. It's a plural name, so you've got that funny little introduction to the concept of the Trinity, but it's not a name. It's a position. It tells us that in the beginning, the one at the top, in the beginning, the one who should be worshipped, the one of importance, made the heavens and the earth. Ah, doesn't tell us which God it is. But then don't worry, God tells us over and over again exactly who he is. You just think about the times he says, I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Our God defines who he is. And you find in the Old Testament that interesting word, Lord, sometimes in all capitals. Yes, the, uh, the God name of God was so considered so holy by the children of Israel. That little commandment, which is, you shall not take the name of thy Lord thy God in vain, got taken so seriously by the children of Israel, they didn't even write it down. They just replaced the letters. And we've translated that as Lord. But it is a name. It tells exactly which God we're dealing with. And this is paralleled here in John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was with the person at the top, and the Word was the person at the top. He was in the beginning with <laughs> the one who should be worshipped. All things were made through the Word, and without the Word, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was was the light of men, the same light that came down at the beginning of time when God said, let there be light, and light was. The light came down and hovered over the darkness, the light that was the Lord. So who is this word? Who is this word? Who is God? Who is with God? Who is a powerful word? Who is the creating word? The answer is, the word is Jesus Christ. Don't believe me? Drop down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, Jesus Christ is the word, the word who is God, the word who is the creator God, the word who was at the beginning with God, and by him all things were made. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were made by Jesus Christ, and without him nothing was made that was made. Ah, you're beginning to join the dots. Jesus Christ is not just our creator. Jesus Christ is not just our sustainer. He's also our saviour. And many people in the church today say, hey, we need to focus on the New Testament. We need to focus at Jesus Christ as the saviour. 
And yes, the saving part of Jesus Christ is a very, very important part. But you have to understand, in order to worship him in fullness, you have to give him his worthship, all the worth that he's due. And that's not just him as the saviour, it's him as the sustainer of mankind. The very same word that stood there on the mount and fed the 5,000 and their wives and their children, who was moved with compassion and would heal the sick, was the very same word who by the word of the Lord, fed those 100 men in the time of Elisha. And you notice, none of these prophets ever actually attribute these miracles to themselves. They always attribute it to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord who is Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord who is the Creator. Ah, the dots begin to join. You see, in our world today, when we talk about a biblical worldview, many people in many churches think a biblical worldview is purely how we view the Bible. Now, the biblical worldview, the true definition of a biblical worldview, are the glasses we wear to view the entire world around us through the Bible. Because many people take topics in the world and try and fit it into the Bible, and you're going about it in completely the wrong way. Take dinosaurs, for instance. Dinosaurs created by Jesus? Yes, we did a little video clip for Facebook called Jesus Made All the Dinosaurs. It now has nearly 150,000 views. It's really provocative. But yes, Jesus Christ did make the dinosaurs. John 1 and Colossians 1 make that absolutely clear. Jesus Christ, who is the Word, created all things. And without the Word, nothing was made that was made. And Colossians says that not only all things were made by Jesus Christ, they were made for Jesus Christ. Dinosaurs made by Jesus Christ and made for his glory, made to glorify him and show his power as a genius creator. Ah, controversial stuff and quite fun stuff as well. But dinosaurs? You see, many people have the idea of, hey, we've got to take what we know about dinosaurs and try and fit it in the Bible. And you realise if you do that, what you're actually doing is not just taking what we know about dinosaurs, you're taking an incredible amount of baggage with it, you're taking a load of interpretation, and you're trying to fit man's interpretation into the Bible. And you will never be able to do it without chopping and changing God's word, without removing it and maybe just placing it as an allegorical or a good moral story. You do realise that's very dangerous. But you see, take our dinosaur skull here. This is Lexi the baby T-Rex. What can we know for absolute fact? Well, we can measure her. We can get an absolute fact of her dimensions. We can count her teeth. These are things that we know absolutely 100%. You realise that nothing that we can observe about this goes against anything in the Bible. How does Lexi fit in the Bible from what we can purely observe? Ah, uh, well... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on day six, God created the land creatures. Dinosaurs, by definition, are a land creature. Therefore, dinosaurs were created on day six, according to the Bible. Simple as. But we can go one step further with what we know about Lexi. We can do some, yes, it is interpretation, but it's observational interpretation or evidential interpretation. You see, we can look at Lexi and we can begin to go, well, we can see these little dots. That's where the ligaments would have joined. So now we can work out where the ligaments were. Now we can work out where the muscles were. We can scan the inside of her brain space. We can make a model of the brain. We can begin to construct how the muscles were fit. By the shape of the muscles, we can work out roughly how fast she could go. We can work out a lot about her. 
Now, all of this fits in perfectly with the Bible. It's evidential, it's interpretation, but it has evidence attached to it. But then we can move into the purely hypothetical, the pure interpretation, which has no actual observational evidence attached to it whatsoever. What colour was Lexi? What kind of scales did she have? Oh, what kind of food did she eat? You see, many people look at these great big sharp teeth and assume, hey, she's got big sharp teeth, she must be a meat eater. No, the reality is teeth tell you everything about how an animal eats, not what an animal eats. Case in point, the green iguana. I used to work as a zookeeper. I used to keep these things as sort of, you know, look after them all the time. And we used to have to take them and do health checks on them. And we had a particularly vicious iguana. You see, he had actually had his tail pulled off by a previous owner and he disliked humans as a result. And you can't really blame him. He'd gone through a lot of trauma. But unfortunately, as a zoo, we had to get him and do a health check on him every single month. And one particular month, he had a great big bit of skin stuck in his eye. And so I went over the top and grabbed hold of that skin and pulled it out. And he whipped around and grabbed me. And his teeth were serrated. His teeth were backward pointing. His teeth sunk down through my flesh, cut down through into the bone and hung on tight. And we tried everything to get him to let go. We tried squirting vinegar into the corner of his mouth. And that just meant I had vinegar in my cuts. And that was really painful. But it wasn't anywhere near as painful as the chilli paste they then tried. Ah, my hand was burning by the end of that. And in the end, we had to get a metal rod. Push a metal rod in the side of his mouth and prise his mouth open. I then had to push my hand inside his mouth to unhook his teeth and carefully slide out the side. Because if I'd have just pulled it straight out, it would have sliced through my tendons, easily sliced through my flesh, and that would have been the end of my hand. I'd have needed to go and get loads of stitches and surgery and all sorts. These teeth easily sank through flesh. But you know, iguanas are vegetarian. Meat is very dangerous to them, even though they have quintessential meat eaters' teeth. Ah, teeth tell you only how an animal eats, not what an animal eats. If an animal has sharp serrated teeth like an iguana or a T-Rex, it means they slice and swipe through their food. If an animal has pointed rounded teeth like Spinosaurus or like crocodiles, it means they spear and stab their food. And if you have flat f f sort of um, completely flat or rich teeth like a cow or an elephant, it means you grind your food. You don't stab it. Ah, it tells you everything about how an animal eats, not what an animal eats. And the minute you go beyond that, you're moving into pure interpretation. You see, you have to be careful when you're looking at the world around you as to what is fact, what is observational, and what is pure interpretation. You see, there's a big difference. And you need to make sure that you're not taking any of this baggage in with you when you try and interpret it through the Bible. Oh, but if you take all of this and try and fit it into the Bible, you will end up chopping and changing and destroying the Bible. In fact, what we should be doing is actually using the Bible as our basis of our faith, as our framework, our glasses with which we view the world around us. Okay, we have a dinosaur here that's 102 million years old and it uh, lived in a swamp and uh, there were no humans alive with it. You do realise that's what a lot of people believe about dinosaurs.
But you see, if you take all of that and try and fit it into the Bible, you will end up destroying the Bible. What you need to do is take the Bible and say, no, God's word says he created the world in six days, around six to ten thousand years ago. That's what the word of the Lord says. Let's take this and apply it to our dinosaur. Hang on a minute. We have a problem. Because you understand if the dinosaur is really 110 or 102 or 65 or however many million years you want to make it, it means you can't trust the Bible from the very beginning. Ah, we need to use the Bible as our foundation and apply it to the world around us and say, hang on a minute, we need a new interpretation for dinosaurs. Especially when nothing that we actually observe contradicts anything in scripture. Oh, an important point. There are many, many, many theories opinions, ideas, hypotheses that contradict every single part of the Bible, but the facts never actually do. What we observe in God's world agrees with what we read in God's world and its words, and it's very important to make sure you understand that when you're viewing the world around you. Ah, it's important to get the right perspective. So there we go, an important reminder for me about who Jesus Christ is, our creator, saviour and our sustainer. It's in him that all things are held together. Okay, but all around the country, in fact all around the world, not just here in the UK, people will be heading to church this Easter. Even people who don't normally go to church or people who haven't yet accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And they'll be going to church and they'll be standing up because it'll be time for the praise and worship session. And they'll be praising and worshipping who? Who are they praising and worshipping? Who is worth the worship? And also, what does it actually mean to worship the Creator? So let's go and listen to John Mackay as he gives us a sermon he gave to a church in the States a little while back about not only who Jesus Christ is, but what it actually means to worship the Creator. Okay, our subject today. Yes, that's our Q&A website. You'll see the topics at the top, dinosaurs, creation, Christ... We make no apologies. This question-answer site is about biblical answers to issues concerning the origin and history of life. We deliberately opened it for students last year when questions began to pour in from around the globe. But what has fascinated us, the questions have largely come from two areas. There are others, but one of them is, why can't I just say God used evolution? An incredible number of questions about that. And the second one, well, do you have to read Genesis as real history? Are the days real days? An incredible number of questions about that. Yes, over the years, we've done all sorts of television programs, like that one there, which is a documentary filmed all around the world, on the evidence for creation, on the evidence from the rocks and from the fossils, um, that's Darwin on the rocks, they are up the back today. We've debated all over the planet. But that's been one of the most popular debates. It was against a theologian who was also a professor of physics at Cambridge University who took the attitude, we'll just say God did it. He used millions of years of evolution. Obviously the reason we promote that debate DVD is he lost and I won and we wouldn't even tell you about it. So you will find that really, really helpful. But to bring it into your context, you see, uh, you really need to know where does this issue fit into your world here in Lexington, Kentucky. I was reading your paper the other day. You know the uh, Herald, your local paper on Wednesday. Uh, do you read Dear Abby? 
I like to look at the questions because it tells me where society is or where Abby wants you to think society is. And this one is headed, trans woman's evolution leaves her at crossroads. Sad question, really. Talks about a, a lady who's, I've been in a relationship with another woman for years. Now I find myself desiring men instead of women. And then she goes on to say, I find myself evolving away from her. What an interesting thought. What should I do, dear Abby? In other words, this lady says, I used to be lesbian. Now I want men. I'm evolving. What should I do? Um, a Bible college lecturer. It's appeared in our Australian Sydney Morning Herald a, a little while ago. It's headed, beliefs must be tempered by facts. And away he goes and he says... Um, I was brought up, you know, in a Bible-believing church, etc., and, and I was encouraged to accept what the Bible says. And then he has a bit of a revelation because he's struggling with the issue of what the Bible says about homosexuality. This guy, a Bible college lecturer, is his background. And it says, um, I actually came to uh, problems when I looked at the surprising implications of the stories of Noah's flood which began to dawn on me. The big problem is that this Noah's flood story is certainly not factual. And away he goes to say, since that's the case, we can't take any of what the Bible says about having a strict stand on homosexuality as a Christian position. Hmm. There's our cultural context. Lexington, trans women writing in, they're evolving. Australia, Bible college lecturer, the Bible isn't historically true, therefore let's open the door to any attitude on sexuality. To bring you into the picture, what year is it? Oh, I, I guess you say 2012, correct? Correct. But, uh, but have you been to Israel lately and asked a Jewish rabbi what year it is? He might not say 2012, but it's not because you have the numbers 2012, it's because the actual year is that. A.D. 2012. Do you realise that years don't have any meaning until you tell me where you're starting from? Because if I was to go to Israel, they would start their year from the creation. Because A.D., come on some of you older people, A.D. refers to the birth of who? Jesus Christ. And if you're an Orthodox rabbi, that's probably the last thing you want to be reminded of in your calendar. So they have after Adam or after creation. Hmm. Let me prove to you that our Western society has deliberately dropped the AD because we don't like Jesus as a reference point. There is a 2010 model car parked in front of an AD 1932 model shop. It's interesting. Talk to the kids in the local high school. What year is it? They will say 2012. But I'm old enough to remember when Hollywood used to make movies like East of Java. And they began in the year of our Lord, 1647 AD. Oh, when was Rome founded? Well, it was Romulus and Remus. When was that? 46 BC? <laughs> that only came after Jesus' birth was widely accepted. The Romans didn't know it was 46 years to go to the birth of Christ. They had a different calendar system. Okay, there's an old grave in the UK. 
You mightn't be able to read the Latin date, M-C-M-D-C-C. Some of you old people remember using Latin numbers? Hmm. But look what's in front of it. A-D, Anno Domini, in the year of the birth of our Lord. Second IQ question. Who remembers the next line or the next set of words in that old hymn? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Hmm, that hymn dates from a while ago. Now, we are here in a worship service. We're not just in a public lecture. I, I do hope you bought your Bibles because I'm actually going to get you to open them and see what's inside them. Of course, I won't always force you to go to your Bibles because we would take hours to get through this message. It's a great message, an encouraging one, that you see we're in a Christian church, not just any church, and the subject of all of our worship songs this morning has been none other than Jesus. So would you open your Bibles, please, and have a look at John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then skip down to verse 14. Now, ever since I've become a Christian, God's Holy Spirit is impressed on me. Get this word and eat it. Get this word and make it part of you. Can I encourage you? Don't just read your Bible. Don't just study it. Memorize it. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Hey, that's how Genesis starts, in the beginning. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. That's how Genesis starts, in the beginning, God. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, was with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. That's Genesis. In the beginning, God created. Or you only take five words to say it in Genesis, you take three verses to say it in John, so the Holy Spirit is expanding Genesis to begin the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Or how do we know it's Jesus? Skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, I got you to open your Bibles because you really do need to check on what the preachers out the front say. Because I've heard so many preachers on television and what they say is not actually in the Bible. Can I encourage you? Check. You see, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, all things were made by Him. The Word became flesh and from now on you know Him by the name of Jesus and the title of Christ. Jesus is his name, Christ is his position, the anointed one, the Messiah. But have you gathered it? If all things were made by Jesus, and this is a summary of Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, John's Gospel, in the beginning all things were made by Jesus. Do you realize what you've just learned? Jesus Christ is God the Creator. Now, we can deal with the mysterious subject of the Trinity today, but he told me you have to have lunch. So we're not going to go onto the Trinity. There's a great DVD on teaching on Allah and the Trinity and all the evidence for it biblically and scientifically. But for this morning's purposes, Jesus is God the Creator. In fact, let me emphasize, we often call Jesus the Son of God, correct? That is true, but it is not the whole truth. If we are here today to give worship to Jesus, we need to know who we are giving worship to. Jesus is not just the Son of God. Because isn't it true the Scripture says when you become believers, you are the sons of God? Yes, but you are never God the Son. Jesus is the Son of God, but He is also God 
who is the Son. He's God the Creator and He's God the Head of the Church. Now just so you don't hear me wrong, flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. And you will see I've got other references in here you can go to at your leisure. But Hebrews chapter 1. And the reason I pick on Hebrews is very simple. You see, we're in a worship service, we're in a Christian worship service, and the book of Hebrews was written to people who'd been Jewish. Ah, they were familiar with Genesis in Hebrew. But they'd made a decision to become Christians, or had they? Now a bit of persecution was coming along, and the writer of Hebrews is doing his best to remind them that this Jesus really is the fulfillment of all the promised anointed prophecies, the Christ prophecies in the Old Testament. Look how he starts. God at many times and in many different ways has spoken to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, and by the way, that's 2,000 years ago now, in these last days he has spoken to us through the Son, by whom he, meaning the Father, made all things. Ah, so it's not just Jesus. I mean, if you were there when Jesus turned water into wine, you would have thought, hey, he did that. If you were there when he told the disciples, take the loaves and fishes, you would have thought, Jesus did that. If you were there when he raised the dead, you would have said, wow, this is the miracle man. But you remember Jesus said, I only do what my Father gives me to do. So yes, we can discuss the role of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you see, what we want to do today is make a point that you may never have thought of before. But let's clarify this one last time. No, no need to look all this up. I'll bring these verses up for you because otherwise I'll wear the fingerprints off your fingers for the rest of the morning. Who is Jesus? John's Gospel, chapter 14. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. It's sufficient for us. And Jesus said, oh. I can imagine him groaning as he answers this question. Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you don't really know who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And you say, show us the Father? Hey, I'm standing here in front of you. Hey, scratch, scratch. Wooden splinters in your fingernails? Philip's. I'm sure Philip's gone, whoa, I don't know how to handle this. But look how Jesus goes on. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray to... Hey, I just thought you said you were the Father. If I've seen you, I've seen that. This is hard work. And Jesus said, listen, I'll pray the Father, and, and he shall give you another comforter. Okay, so there's me, there's the Father, there's the comforter. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but I can talk to him because he's obviously not just me, and I'm going to ask him to send the Comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him. Whew. Philip's maybe breathing relief. Until Jesus said, but you know him, for he dwells with you, present tense. Whew. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, you can see why theologians long ago called the Trinity a mystery, can't you? Philip would have totally agreed with him at this point in time. But look what he goes on to say. But I won't leave you comfortless. I will come to you, future tense. Hey? It's the comforter. You, you just said he's separate. The world can't see him. But you just said, I'm him. Ah, wonderfully interesting book, your Bible. 
Now, having said all that, we started out by looking at Jesus Christ, Creator. We started out before that by reminding you of that very old and very theologically sound hymn, The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Let's ask a second foundational question. What is Jesus the foundation of? And surprise, surprise, the seven-day week. Shouldn't surprise you. If you have a calendar in which the year is AD 2012 and all things were made by Jesus, he's got something to do with the calendar. Hmm. Okay, let's prove it to you. Exodus 20. Isn't this a portion of the Ten Commandments? Yes, it is. And, and didn't you used to have this in your courtrooms? That was when the judges said, God makes the laws, we just implement them. Now that atheism and agnosticism and scepticism rule, don't you have to have the Ten Commandments outside the classroom? Who makes up the rules now? Well, the judges do. And then they get kicked out by the next people who get elected, and so they make new rules, and it's chaos. Six days you will labor and do all your work, but the seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord your God, in it you will not do any work. Hmm, interesting rule. For in six days the Lord made heavens and earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the Sabbath. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay, are you tying this together? In the beginning God created. All things were made by the Word and without Him was nothing made that was made and the Word became flesh and you know Him as Jesus Christ. Okay, if all things were made by Jesus, who worked for six days? Jesus did. Question, who rested on the seventh day? Answer, Jesus did. Aha! Isn't that what he was doing the day after the crucifixion? Resting on the seventh day because he made a law about it and he had to keep the law alive or dead or you would never have a saviour. He never broke his own rules. Hmm. In fact, when you go through your concept, why do I have a seven-day week? The answer ultimately is Exodus 20 verse 11. But Exodus 20 verse 11 just doesn't stand alone. God says, hey guys, here's some good laws. And uh, he said, you will do this because I did that. When did I do that? Back in Genesis. Who am I? Well, in the beginning was the word. Hey, that's true. He just spoke to Moses. Ah, that's why your New Testament says, Moses, who for the sake of Christ, not for the sake of God, but for the sake of Christ. Who is Christ? He is the Word, the God who speaks. Ah, do you realize these guys in the Old Testament knew an awful lot more about Jesus than you and I give them credit for? When the book, say, book of Isaiah says, and the Word of the Lord came to me saying, we think of somebody whispering in your ear, but that somebody happens to be Jesus, who is the Word, the one who speaks. Christ, the Creator, is back there in Genesis. Don't be surprised, therefore, that that verse we referred to, even in our study on dinosaurs, Jesus said, if you believe Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, creation, Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, the law of God, the Ten Commandments. You believe that? You would believe me. That's why I was in the grave on the seventh day. That's why I rose on the first day. Because that was the day the Lord has made. We'll be glad and rejoice in it. Hmm, it's interesting when you start to tie all this together. Okay, let's get back to the issues that we raised out of your Herald, Lexington Herald, last Wednesday. It was all about relationships, men and women, women and women. 
Don't you live in a world where even many Christians think, well, if it doesn't work, I can always divorce my partner. In fact, I don't even need to get married to them. In fact, if I go to work, I can leave him at home to do the dishes and change the diapers. We call them nappies in Australia, but our Australian doesn't translate too well over here. Homosexuality's okay. Lesbianism's okay. Isn't that the current American culture? It's also true in Australia and all through the West. Hmm. Jesus Christ, who made all things, had a statement on divorce. It's in Matthew 19. The Pharisees come to him and they ask him, trying to trap him, what do you teach about divorce? So he goes and he answers them. Haven't you read? By the way, this is not gentle Jesus, meek and wild. This is a punch under the belt. Do you realize to be a Pharisee, you had to really be able to quote your Old Testament? I mean in Hebrew, not just in English. You had to know your stuff because you were a religious lawyer. So he's talking to lawyers. Haven't you read? Oh, what a cut under the belt. Haven't you read? He who made them a beginning, made them male and female, and said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. Interest point, he's quoting half a verse from chapter 1 and half a verse from chapter 2. Never let anybody tell you these chapters contradict one another. Because if they did, ah, think carefully, here's the lawyers for the defense, the Pharisee, Here's the lawyer for the prosecution, Jesus. If he's quoted two half verses from contradictory accounts, guess what the lawyers for the defense will do? Tear him to pieces. But they know those chapters are just compliments to one another. Haven't you read back in the beginning? Did, did, did you notice the structure of this, by the way? Do you know what Jesus is saying? The bottom line is that. Jesus, as God, invented marriage... So the rules are his to make and they're not ours to break. I don't like somebody who tells me I can't do some things. I don't even like people who tell me I have to do some others. Positive or negative, I don't like anybody telling me what to do. That was the real issue. Oh, you do remember the Pharisees, don't you? If you were the wife and you burnt the chicken three nights in a row, they just wrote you out a little bit of paper. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Here in America... And in Australia and in the West, it's just about as easy. You don't even need to apply for a divorce in many countries these days. The government will just do it for you or you can build it into your marriage contract. Amazing. You see, there's the structure. As you read through your Bible, you want to talk about a doctrine, marriage, lesbianism, whatever you want to talk about, then Jesus starts his issue on marriage and divorce. You read about it in Matthew 19. Don't stop there. Nothing in the New Testament floats alone. It always floats on top of something else. Matthew is quoted directly out of Genesis. And Genesis is about who invented marriage. And since all things were made by Jesus... Actually, doesn't that mean if you've got marriage problems, the best counsellor to go to is Jesus Christ? Not the psychologist. He wasn't there in the beginning and he became a psychologist probably because he needs all the help he can get. Ah. You see, every Christian doctrine does that structure. A New Testament reference, the one most of us are familiar with, but that New Testament reference only makes sense if you have an Old Testament basis and ultimately you end up back in, in the beginning, God. 
Or, you see, you're starting to understand the seriousness of that verse because isn't it true that you have many Islamics in the USA today? And they would totally agree with you that God is the creator. But you see, God is not a name. God is a title. God is a position. God is a role. In the beginning, God. Question, which God? What's his name? The answer, Jesus Christ. You've got a problem with that in schools? Or is that not the reason when I was in one of your big high schools, the guard had baseball bats and guns? That is America today. Divorce is easy. What's the bottom line? Well, you have humanism. The exaltation of man is a very common religion, even though it's not called a religion. And there's no doubt about it, the people who are humanists say, we have evolved a brain that can make the decisions. Their foundational philosophy is the theory of evolution. It means that when they explain marriage, they think, well, hydrogen, molecules of hydrogen. By the way, have you run across any boy molecules of hydrogen lately? How about little girl hydrogens? Been to a hydrogen wedding? Now you see, if you start off with a big bang, hydrogen somehow has to become molecules that become monkeys that become men that get married. So you have to explain where it comes from. Now the bottom line is, we invented marriage, so the rules are ours to make, therefore they're ours to break. And that is the West. That is the USA. That is Canada. That is England. That is Australia. That is New Zealand. The conflict? The rules are ours to make and ours to break versus the rules are Jesus to make and they're not ours to break. Okay, some of you may do marriage counselling. What's your starting position? I mean, someone approaches you for divorce. What's your authority? Because their authority may simply be they can get a slip of paper ever so easily. What's your authority? Because out of our worship service this morning and out of our Sunday school where we just dealt with dinosaurs, yes, we're covering a lot of issues, but ultimately that will be the deciding factor. Do you accept that this Jesus, who is the creator, does have the right? Ah, or do you accept the high court judge's ever-changing decision? Let me give you a quick look at humanism through God's eyes. Or the God who was there. Here's what he sees. Humanism, definitely the end-working philosophy. Evolution, provably the theory that is justifying it. But the real problem is an issue called sin. You see, I raise that because there are certainly many people, particularly in this sort of apologetics, who say, the issue is creation versus evolution. Sorry, that's the symptom. That's not the real issue. The real issue gets down to sin. Evolution is currently the best excuse. Hmm. Okay. The foundational problem in our society is not just a theory. It happens to be a real problem called sin. Can I remind you that the real issue in, creation, in Christianity is not just the fact of creation, but the person who is the creator. When you read through your Bible, have you noticed it doesn't say, in the beginning, here's what happened? It says, in the beginning, who? That's where you go to. It's the who that is more important than the what, even though the what is important as well. Okay, that brings us up to why we were singing before. I mean, didn't you love that music? Didn't you, didn't you think those guys and girls out here with the instruments were clever? Question, when was the last time you heard a gorilla band do that good? 
Oh, don't get me wrong, they weren't a guerrilla band. Uh, not like the old monkeys on television. The reality was, do you realize human beings are the only group of creatures on the planet who do this sort of thing? There's no first monkey Baptist church meeting to worship the monkey creator this morning. This is a uniquely human attribute. So why are you here? Are you here to worship the kangaroo totem? Because there are native tribes and this will be their chief spirit. How about the upside down emu? You're not going to worship him? I, I do hope you are here today to worship Jesus Christ. And given all the evidence of your music and everything the pastor has said, I, I've concluded that is why you are here. But we do need to spell out a bit. You see, there's the old word. You do realize English has sort of changed over the years. And one of the characteristics of the English language is our ability to shorten things. You may have noticed this particularly with the British. They shorten words, they swap them around, and worship is an old word. Worship is our modern word. Oh, isn't it true that the judge used to be called your worship? Hey, Well, why? Because he'd done many things that took him a long time to do, and he was deserving of your praise. Oh, what's worship? What's well, related to workmanship? The judge had worked hard with all of his academic studies. He was worthy of your praise because of his workmanship. And if you haven't got it yet, let me sneak an apparent commercial in which helps you make a point. I've got three products here. I have a book by Gary Parker. The reason I've got it is simple. Number one, I thoroughly commend it for one reason. When I was a student, he was a professor. We used his textbooks in Queensland University. He was an atheist. He believed he was a monkey's uncle. Then he became a Christian. This is a great book for just about anybody on all the things I didn't know when I was an atheist. Okay, it's glued, it's paper. How much do you think you'd pay for it? Then we have a documentary. If God made one man, Adam, where did all the different colours come from? And we've got a lovely little black girl here and a lovely little white girl. How do you explain all this? We travel the world filming native tribes and different coloured people. How much do you think you'd pay for that? And of course, I have this. Dennis Peterson, museum curator, converted to Christ, decides to do a museum in a book. You've enjoyed today. A bit of everything we've done today will be in here. Very well done, because every page is a different topic. You can start anywhere you like. It's encyclopedic. Question. Out of these things here today, the ones that are paperbacks, the ones where we run off by the gazillions in Hong Kong, even though it costs us a fortune to produce, or the hardcover, stitched, not glued, beautifully full colour, which one do you think you'd pay most for? Answer is this one. Because a lot more workmanship has gone into the worthship that is due for this object. So when you come here to worship Jesus, you are really talking about the work that he's done that is worthy of you giving him praise. There's one. You see, when you open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, there's what you read. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Amen! That, that makes me really happy. Redeemed? Hey, that's not a concept that many young people have anymore. Some of the really oldies who remember the Great Depression, 
they understand redeemed because don't you have pawn shops? Some people still have to redeem things. What's a pawn shop? Well, you see, you're running out of food. You take your wedding ring. You don't want to sell it, but you do want some money, so you temporarily trade it in. The pawn shop owner gives you some money, and you know that if you can come back in three weeks with the X dollars he gave you for it, plus 20%, because he's a loan shark, um, you can redeem that which was already your property by right. Redemption. To repay for something that's actually already your own. Okay, how did you get that money? Well, hopefully you or your husband went and got a job. You worked for it. Ah, now this is interesting. The wages of sin. Wages. Wages, the money you get paid for the work that you do. Jesus completed a work in order to pay the wages of sin. Redemption is a work. How much praise do you give to Jesus for you that have been redeemed? I'm praising him all the time because I'm so thrilled that I'm not going to hell. I'm going to be with Jesus for eternity. And, and there won't be any politicians. No elections, no taxes. I mean, that alone is enough to encourage me. Hmm. But you see, you find that your scripture in the same book, in chapter 4 and verse 11, one of the first scripture choruses I ever learned. Thou art worthy, O Lord, for thou, yes, I learned it in King James, thou hast created. Who created? Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is the revelation of, can you complete it? Jesus Christ. Thou art worthy, O Lord, for thou hast created. We did that in John's Gospel, verse, chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. Question, how much praise do you give him for that? Didn't we sing in our songs this morning that he is the creator? We did. We did. I'm glad about that because, you know, when I go to many churches, we'll spend an hour singing, usually three songs, 30 times each. But very rarely is it about Jesus Christ, the creator or a lot of praise about who you are, etc. In fact, there's some silly songs. We love you for who you are, not for what you've done. Absolute rubbish. We only love him because of what he's done. And then you want to give him praise for all the work he did to redeem you from sin and hell and death. But you see, don't stop there. You need to give him praise for everything he has done. Not just in your singing. You see, worship is any action that declares the worth of Christ as redeemer and as creator. One of our very famous billionaires died a little while ago and before he died, he basically shook his hand and said, there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell. Okay, be consistent. You're a Christian. Tell me where that man is now. Yeah, along with the rich ruler mentioned in Luke chapter 16 where the flames don't go out, where the rich ruler said, I'm in torment, send me some water. And the worst torment was he could see across to heaven where he could never get to. That's where that man is. Question, how much money do you think he'd be willing to pay to get out? Everything he had, but it's too late. He rejected the one free offer that Jesus paid. The price has been paid. You can't add anything to it. Do you give Jesus the worship for that? Question, how much do you think planet Earth is worth? 
I mean, if you woke up tomorrow morning and there on eBay is a following commercial for sale, one little used universe, how much would you offer? Well, you can't. You don't have any more than the universe to offer. Ah, worship is any action that declares the worth of Christ. When you're sleeping, when you're drinking, when you're eating, when you are singing, when you are putting money in the church offering plate. By the way, sir, do you have one of those fingerprint ID kits in the inside of the... tells you who's giving what, you know? God does. God does. He knows exactly how much you think he is worth. Okay, let's begin to tie this all together and to move it to a conclusion. I was really thrilled when the past said, we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation. So there's no doubt about it, God has put this together in advance of the series he's going to run. I am absolutely convinced of it because this was on my computer weeks ago. The Eternal Gospel, Revelation chapter 14. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to all who dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue of people, saying with a loud voice. This guy was an old-fashioned fire and brimstone preacher. No doubt about it. You couldn't miss what he said. But you notice the introduction? He's preaching the everlasting gospel. Everlasting from eternity to eternity. Oh, not just from Matthew to Revelation, but from eternity to eternity. Gospel, Old English for good news. Oh, you see, the good news began in Genesis. In the beginning, God created. It didn't happen by accident. It began in Genesis 1.26. You were made in the image of God. You are not animals. And everything God did was very good. Don't you blame him for anything bad. Hmm. But it says he preached the gospel, the everlasting gospel. He did it with a loud voice. There's the start. Fear God. Give glory to him for the hour of his judgment. Hey, that doesn't sound like Jesus loves me, this I know. It isn't the gospel today. Jesus loves you. He wants to forgive you. Well, all of which is true, but it's not the start of the gospel. This guy says, this angel, this loud-voiced preacher says, fear God. Why? Well, doesn't the scripture say the fear of God is the beginning of? Yeah, you can't avoid this. The Bible talks about a God who's not just real, who's not just the creator, who not just became a man, who became your savior and rose from the dead to prove that he conquered death. This talks about a God who you must fear. Hmm, fear God. Oh, isn't it true that most of us have a favorite verse in the New Testament? John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have. I'm glad I've got that. But that's not the gospel. That's the second half. The gospel begins in verse 14. Just as Moses held up the serpent in the wilderness, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, in the same way, for God so loved the world. Read it. What was Moses doing holding up a serpent in the wilderness? Answer, God was angry with the people of Israel. Why was he angry? They'd sinned and God is a holy God and sin offends him. They deserve judgment. He was giving it to them. What were those little creepy crawly things that were running amongst them biting them? Not just serpents, but fiery serpents. You ever been bitten by a snake or a spider? I have. I don't want it to happen again. Man, that is fire in your veins. 
fiery serpents. And God comes with a solution. If you by faith just look up at that stick that Moses is holding up with a serpent, I will by my absolute right forgive you. And I'm sure there were many learned uh, Jewish theologians there who said, it can't be that simple. What must we do to do this? And God said, simple, you by faith look up. Oh, it can't be that easy. And God said, it is. Only by faith in what I've done will you have forgiveness of sin and death. And if they did do that, by the way, even when they got bitten, what happened? They didn't die. That's what God promises, life in exchange for death. Fear God, he does have the right to judge. And look how he goes on. Worship him that made heavens and earth. Hey, who made the heavens? All things were made by Jesus. Without him was nothing made that was made. He made the heavens, he made the earth, he made the sea, he made the fountains of waters. So as we sum up, were you here this morning or will you come back next week to give Jesus the praise that's due to his name? Because Jesus is creator, Jesus is sustainer, Jesus is saviour, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God. Or do you sell him short? Because many Christian churches do. They pick only the bit that they like. I've been on some churches that concentrate so much on God the Father and they're very strict and stern in the Old Testament. I've been on some churches that only concentrate on Jesus as Son and they're usually, well, they've usually got most of their hands high, they're hanging onto the rafters or jumping off the chandeliers. Now, don't get me wrong, I love joy in worship. I've also been to some churches where they've never heard of the Holy Spirit. He must be on vacation. Do you realise the Bible teaches you this is all who is God? the three who is one. But when you meet, you come to give praise to Jesus as God, as Lord, as Saviour, Sustainer and Creator. Challenge point? Can you see why this Jesus has the right to tell you when you are wrong? Why he does have the right to tell you no matter who you are or no matter who I am or even if you're the President, repent. I know what's right and if you've done it, gone against it, that is wrong. He does have the power to condemn you. You know, I've come across silly people in my debate say, listen, I'm going to hell, all my friends are in hell. And I have to say, that may be your opinion, but God tells me there's no friends in hell. It's a terrible place. He does have the power to condemn you. Some of you have seen me versus Dawkins on YouTube. You only saw a portion of it. He never plays the whole lot. The reality is Richard Dawkins, who arrogantly dismisses God on judgment day, will bow the knee and admit that Jesus Christ is Lord, even against his own will. I pray that he'll do that before it's too late. This God, praise God, he's got the grace to forgive you. You see, what right has John Mackay got to condemn you? Nothing. But I do have the right to warn you there's a God who does, because I know this God, he's actually forgiven me as a sinner. And he saved me. He picked me up. He made me new. I mean, when you go out preaching the gospel, are you going out preaching about gentle Jesus, meek and mild? I, I hope that's not all you're telling them. Are you going out preaching about the Jesus he wants to forgive you? I hope that's not, not all you're telling them. I hope you're out there saying, my God made the universe and you're a drunk in the gutter. My God can pick you up. Not through my five laws from Alcoholics Anonymous. My God can do that because he made the universe in just six days. You're easy pickings. He can do a remake job on you with no trouble whatsoever. He's got the strength.
You see, the gospel actually begins in Genesis with Christ as creator. It moves through Matthew with Christ as saviour and it terminates in Revelation with Christ as Lord of all. Question, are you willing to preach the lot? Not just the portion you like, not just Acts chapter 2 or Romans chapter 8, not just Matthew chapter 3, but the whole counsel of God from Genesis through to Revelation. May God encourage you to be faithful to this God who is none other than Jesus Christ the Lord. Let's pray. So we've dealt with two main things so far. Who is Jesus Christ and what does it mean to worship? Now join both myself and John as we revisit a broadcast we did last year talking not only about Easter, who Jesus is and the resurrection, but also the importance of thorns. What do they have to do with Easter? Well, there's a little clue in that. What was Jesus wearing? And what's the connection between creation? And let me tie together just the two streams this morning, or this evening, or this afternoon, wherever you are around the planet. Have you ever noticed that the climate before Jesus came and the climate for several hundred years after was pretty good? I mean, there's only one storm recorded in the entire New Testament. And the Romans conquered the planet basically as it was known, built roads everywhere, and there was no hindrance, no snowstorms, no, no, no terrible weather that would even stop the disciples going to all the world and preaching the gospel. Okay, if you've ever wondered how the God of creation organized things, that's what our Easter special is about. I'm going to start by reading from the book of Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read from the King James. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now catch the next verse. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Now, what's interesting about this Bible verse, I mean, this, that's the way I remember verses. Somewhere it says, are you like that? Or can you quote chapter and verse? I remember when I first went on scripture union camps, they wanted us to learn chapter and verse. And I hadn't grown up in the church, didn't go to Sunday school to learn all those sort of things. But I've always been amazed that in the New Testament, they don't say, Go to Zephaniah 9.9 if you want to look this up. There's a good reason. You know when Jesus stood in the temple and he unrolled the scroll and found the reference to himself? The Jews didn't have chapters or verses. They had stop, start, um, you know, paragraph sort of markings, and that was it. It wasn't until the 12 to 1400s that we have chapters added uh, in France first by an Englishman, and then another Englishman adds the verses. So by the time you get to your Bibles in the 1500s, they're starting to look like Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Oh, he spoke in a certain place on the seventh day and this way, God did rest. Now, you, you should realize that that's a, a cross-reference to Genesis. So let's sort of take you down a bit, and I'll quote from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. That says exactly the same thing. Oh, I gave you the reference in our modern Bibles in English. And God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creepy thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Oh, hang on. The book of Hebrews is about the seventh day. In fact, you need to know that the writer to Hebrews, and he never names himself, many people suspect he was Paul, but he doesn't name himself, is actually out to establish several things. The most important of which is Jesus is God the Creator. Why would that matter? Because in the Old Testament, the prophet prophecies about the Messiah, where, G, where, where God the Father said, I am, and beside me there is no Saviour. So unless you could establish that Jesus was Jehovah or Yahweh, you were going to get nowhere. These are Jewish people. The, the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrew readers, Hebrew speakers, and they're under threat. Did we really trust the Messiah, who is God, the Creator? Hmm. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. You know, it is interesting if you ask what day man was made, because our scripture reference in Genesis just established it. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Oh, no, that's not Genesis. That's Exodus out of the Ten Commandments. He made the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. And he rested on the seventh day. That's tying Hebrews and Genesis together. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. The day that the Lord rested, the day of the Lord's rest, was the day after he finished creating. He made man in his image. Now, let's put two and two together. If I want to know what day the seventh day is, no better source. Go to Jerusalem with me. Let's ask an Orthodox rabbi what day the seventh day is. Now, it goes from our Friday night sunset to Saturday night sunset. Yes, the Jews sort of have a 12-hour difference in their clock. We sort of start the day at midnight, but we're dealing with the Bible, so use Bible time references, which means, of course, that the seventh day is our Saturday for all practical purposes, which means that the sixth day was Friday. Now, did you catch what was said about the Friday? God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, in the Northern Hemisphere, it's still Good Friday. And the first Friday was a very good Friday. Or haven't you ever noticed the link before? I mean, the climate, the weather enables the apostles to go. The whole of creation was set up so you could actually recognize that this Jesus was God, uh, the creator. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. And it's all been done from the foundation of the world. Okay, let's ask a question. What was the world like when it was pronounced a very good world on the first Good Friday? Here we are, Genesis 1, 29 to 30. And God said, Behold, I've given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of the tree-yielding seed. It shall be to you for food. In other words, no McDonald's, no Hungry Jacks, no big burgers, no, no, no meat products, no bloodshed. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creeps upon the earth, wherein there is life, I've given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And David Attenborough wouldn't have had any documentaries to film with animals ripping each other apart, which he thinks is part of survival of the fittest, the fattest. Well, I'm sorry. You see, Sir David, in the beginning, 
there was no bloodshed. Your theory of evolution is so far up the wall and all you theistic evolutionists who are watching need to listen to that. You can't tie evolution and the beginning, the very good beginning together. In that first world, on the first Good Friday, there was no bloodshed. There was no death. It was very good. Hmm. Okay, if you want to know what was included to very good, are you ready for a shock? I mean, those of you on blood pressure tablets, have you taken them today? Have, have you got your karma down us? Because you see, there's one thing that's mentioned there that I can't say I've ever heard somebody else give a sermon on. And it's been there right from the beginning. God makes sure we know about it. Uh, Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that's pleasant to the sight. Come on, let's be honest. We have lots of trees in Australia and many of them are flowering trees. And they're the ones that first say, wow, didn't God make pink gums and beautiful trees with lovely flowers with orchids on? Aren't they very pleasant to look at? Oh, it says, and they're good for food. And some of you have seen me pick the orchids and eat them. Yep. In the beginning, all of the plants look beautiful and they were good for food. And the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. You know, the one you could eat and live forever. Hmm. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all included in Genesis 2, 9. Now, if you want to know what day that was, we know that Eve wasn't there yet because the rest of chapter 2 is all about putting Adam to sleep, making a woman out of his side and bringing it to him. And Adam said, look, that's a woman. Okay. She becomes his wife. What's happened here? is we are on the sixth day because Eve, the whole creation is finished on the sixth day and it's finished after Eve. So this tree is in the garden of Eden and this tree is part of the very good world that God not only created, but he actually labeled. He saw all that he'd made and he pronounced it very good. There was plants in it. There was man in it. There was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, and he did give Adam one rule. Oh, I know some of you are struggling. How could the tree of the knowledge of good and evil be ever classified as good? Well, God didn't make us eat, did he? I mean, he said, that's my tree. Come on, let's, let's think of how generous God was. You have Adam, 69,387,205 trees you can eat from, one I'm keeping. He had the right. He's the creator. Oh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, God spells this out to Adam. Remember, Eve is not there yet. Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Now, the one thing you and I are pretty positive of, look how much life insurance you're taking out. Uh, look how much you're spending on medicine, vaccines, trying to stop yourself dying. We don't think dying's very good, and it never has been. But you see, this was spoken to Adam, and he heard it from God's mouth. He heard it directly from his creator. Um, and yet you and I, we tend to think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as something which is bad. Perhaps I'd better tell you what evil means. One of the things I love doing is tracing words around the planet. And when you look at the word evil in English, you can trace it all the way back to over there in India. You know, that proto-European construction of language they get to? Evil, 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 upel, up and over the line. You see this in the word we use in the New Testament where sin is transgressing the law. 
Now, being involved in geology, we use the word transgression whenever the sea comes up and over the land. But that's what sin is, up and over the line that God has drawn. Hmm. You ever realise that when a city council puts a sign on the edge of a cliff, warning, don't proceed any further. If you want to know why not, the council really doesn't want you jumping off the cliff. You can shut your eyes and walk and pretend you didn't see the sign, but the end result is not good for you. But there's nothing wrong with cliffs. There's nothing immoral about cliffs. You could have a cliff there in the garden and it would still be very good. What's evil? It's a line that the creator has drawn and tells you not to cross over it. Actually, don't you see that in our police laws? Here's the line. You can't cross over it. Well, it's even on the road, right? You can't cross over it. Nothing wrong with roads. Nothing wrong with lines. Keep that in mind because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents God's right and authority to tell you what lines you can't cross. Swap, swap subjects a moment. I mean, you're Adam. You're there. You're all alone. And God tells you about the tree of life. You can eat and live forever. Have you ever thought of what Adam might have needed to do uh, to live forever? Because if you live forever, you don't die. And if you don't die, you have eternal life. Well, I'll give you some suggestions. He could have trusted God and never experienced death. I mean, to be honest, if God came and said, you eat that tree, you'll be dead. If you've never died, what does it actually mean to you? Try explaining it to a little child and you'll get a bit of an idea. Adam maybe knew the word dictionary wise, but he had no experience whatsoever. What could Adam do to have eternal life? He could trust God and not eat the tree. So he could keep eternal life by what he didn't do. You got that? He who had eternal life by what he personally didn't do. He could trust the Lord God and, and, and trust him with his heart and trust him with his whole heart and his whole mind. And he would have no other gods before him. Not that Adam knew about any other God at that stage, but nevertheless, a tree can be a God. Riches can be a God. It doesn't have to be a personal being. But Adam could have had no other God before his creator. Now, let's tie everything we've done together so far, because this is Easter. This is about Christ. This is about Jesus dying, raising from the dead. And you and I are in Genesis. But then that's what the book of Hebrews did, trying to prove that Jesus was the one who could save the, the Jewish people. And this was a message to them before the temple was destroyed. They had a choice. The old way, the temple's still there. Or the new way, Jesus. Who is the way, the truth and life? Is this Jesus really God? Now, when I became a Christian, I heard a bit about Jesus from the pulpit. It was good, but I never really heard the whole story. That's in the New Testament and the Old. Let me give it to you. Genesis 1 verses 1 to 5. We've been referring to it. In the beginning, God created. And by the time you get to verse 5, uh, it's all about everything having been made by him. And the first day of the week was created. God saw the light and it was good. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And it was the first day of the first week. Now, when you go to John's gospel, have you noticed that John borrows? I mean, he didn't do it academically himself. The Holy Spirit is the one leading his mind. John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Verse three, all things were made by him. Verse five, 
with when you have a look at the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not being able to stop it, couldn't comprehend it, and down to verse 14, and Jesus Christ became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you realize your New Testament in the Gospel proclaims Christ is the Creator? A vital message to the Hebrews, a vital message to our evolutionist world. And the devil knows it. If he can get you to swallow evolution, he's got you to disbelieve Jesus Christ. And the more you disbelieve about the Bible, the smaller Jesus actually comes in your mind. Oh, Revelation chapter 4. One of the first scripture choruses I ever learned was out of the book of Revelation. Thou art worthy, thou art worthy. Some of you old enough to remember it. Those scripture choruses came from New Zealand, so good things do come from New Zealand. Um, thou art worthy, O Lord, for thou hast the Creator. Who is the Creator? Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ is the Creator. Chapter 5, verse 9. Thou art worthy. And yes, the King James made for excellent singing because it was invented as part of a rhythmic language of the day, Shakespearean sort of stuff. Okay, thou art worthy. For thou art the lamb that was slain. Tie it together. Jesus Christ, chapter 1. Chapter 4, all things were made by him. Chapter 5, he is the creator. So if you want to be sure of who Jesus Christ is, then you need to know he was there in the garden. Man was made in his image. All things were made by him. Hmm. And he was the one who died on a cross. He took our sin. Don't be surprised, the Creator became the Saviour. And he is the one who sustains everything, weather included. <laughs> Did you catch that? The people of Israel, need, when they were commanded, if you've got a problem with the weather, then ask the chief weather bureau, the one who is in charge of the weather. Because if you don't, I will change the weather until you get acknowledging who I am. <laughs> um, in John chapter 5 and verse 45:46. It's a verse I've preached from for ages. Uh, you know, if you don't believe Moses, you won't believe me, said Jesus. Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Psalm 90. Those six things Moses wrote in your Bible. Genesis chapter 1 is about creation. Uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, etc., all about the law and the laws of God. Psalm 90 is all about teach us, O Lord, to number our days because you and me have so few of them. I'm older than most of you, I'll guarantee that, and I may not have many more days left on this planet. Teach us to number them. Every one of you is not going to be here in a thousand years' time. Let's be honest. Uh, you need to get ready not just to live but to die. But for those of you who are tempted to say God used evolution, do you realise in your world there was bloodshed? In your world there was there was killing. In your world, it never was very good and it still isn't. Now, let's be honest. You're a Christian. What do you think of COVID? It's not very good, is it? No matter what you think of vaccines or conspiracies or anything, none of it's very good. Uh, you'd much rather a world without it, without politicians, without bank robberies, without murders, etc. Those of you are evolutionists, that's the world you're saying God used, the death of animals, etc. Hmm. I'm going to give you a few comparisons, which, which just might help you as we begin to round off today's message. On the very first Good Friday, there were no thorns. On the very first Good Friday, no lion had teeth stained in red stuff, unless he was eating beetroot, of course. Um, they were all vegetarians. Hard as it is 
you and I to come to grips with. That's what the God, the Jesus, who is the creator of all things, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, that's what he said about it. There was no death. On the last Good Friday, yep, there was the first Adam, there was the last Adam. There was the first Good Friday, there was the last Good Friday. You don't need another one. You don't need to sacrifice Christ anymore because on that last Good Friday, he had thorns on his head. His blood was shed and he died in your place and my place. What Adam brought in, the Lord Jesus came to deal with. With one man came sin and with one man sin was dealt with. With one man thorns came in. With one man he had thorns on his head regardless. Oh, I know. Do you realize that the Romans thought they put the thorns on his head? In the same way as the climate gurus say, oh, the weather just happened to be convenient for the apostles. No, the scripture says all of this was organized from the foundation of the world. Now, don't get sidetracked into trying to sort out predestination and free will. You're a human being. If you were God, I'd recognize your opinion, but you're not and I'm not. The Bible talks about both of them. But in reality, it talks about God having organized the whole plan of salvation from before the foundation of the world. I mean, look at this. On the first Good Friday, on the day it was finished, God saw all that he made and it was very good. And then chapter two begins, after God had seen all of this, he pronounced it finished. It was finished. And then he rested from all his works. Have you noticed that repeated in your New Testament on the last Good Friday? John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, the sour wine, what a way to bid someone farewell. Um, he said, it's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Now, can you sort of score these together? I mean, you know, those university programs where they check your writing to see if you borrowed it from anything. There's no doubt about it that the whole of Jesus' life is actually pictured back there in Genesis, and it was even prepared before the foundation of the world. I mean, on the last Good Friday, Jesus, who is God, said the work is finished. But then that's what the writer of Hebrews said. The work was finished from the foundation of the world. Jesus then rested from all his work. Why? Because remember the Jews were a bit worried. The holy day, the special Sabbath was coming. Get him off the cross and put him in the grave because we're not allowed to work removing bodies or killing people on the Sabbath. What hypocrites they were. Hmm. So Jesus died before the end of the, the day and he was removed before the Sabbath and put in the grave. And on the seventh day, he rested. He had to. You see, there was a law, a law that says six days you will labor, you Jewish people, and on the seventh day you will rest. So he did. You see, Jesus kept the law of God that God had given to the Jewish people. He kept it when he was alive and he even kept it when he was dead, because if he didn't, have, he would have been a sinner. I know you find that you struggle with that. But in reality, he had to keep the law alive and dead or he would not have been a perfect person. He would not have been able to take the penalty for our sin. And on the seventh day, God rested. Yes, he did. Back in the Garden of Eden and also in, in Gethsemane, in the garden. Don't be surprised. He rested after he'd finished the garden in the first place. The correlation is incredible. And let me take you back to our Hebrews verse again. The works were finished from foundation of the world. Is that the only place where you read this? No, no, no. You see, Peter, you know, that, that guy who until the Holy Spirit filled him was sort of into chopping off high priest servants' ears. 
Peter was pretty much a wild one until the Holy Spirit got him and turned his energy into, hey, Peter, out you go. Talk to people about me. And Peter did. And he didn't chop any more ears off and didn't get angry at you if you ignored him. He was willing to live and die for this Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 to 20, here's what we read. Verse 18, the subject is announced. It's about those who are redeemed. Verse 19, it tells you redeemed with what? Redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. But verse 20, this one will get many of you. It says all of this was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Actually, don't be surprised. The world was created on a Sunday. That's the first day of the week. That's the day he rose from the dead, the day the light shone in the darkness. So all that was going to be done was already planned out before the foundation of the world. And if you like to think of it, theoretically, the Friday before that, which didn't exist in our time, was already thought through by God. And so was the Sabbath in advance, the day that he knew he would rest when he finished the physical creation, because he's going to paint in that physical creation a picture of the whole of spiritual recreation. Uh, Revelation chapter 13. Do you like reading Revelation? I'm only glad it includes that verse, blessed is he that reads, because there's so much of it that just leaves us behind, doesn't it? One day we'll look back and say, oh, yes, it was so easy. Now you've explained it, Jesus. But until then, we look through a glass darkly. But there's some things that are so plain, they smack you in the face. Here's one in chapter 13 and verse 8. Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. Hmm. Okay. Have you got it yet? Now you know why the weather was so good in the Middle East. Because God was going to command the apostles and the disciples to take the good news and go throughout all the world and they would have no excuse. The weather wouldn't inhibit them at all. One storm in the Mediterranean and Paul just gets shipwrecked and asks for another one. And I'll tell you what, he goes and he finishes his job. He knows that his God is greater than the storm. And the apostles went, went everywhere. Uh, the weather didn't start sort of going downhill till about 400 years after Jesus Christ came to this planet. Perhaps if we'd have finished evangelizing, it wouldn't have gone downhill at all. It's amazing what God uses the weather for. Um, let me give you some good news to finish this off. Um, do you realize that the creator is Jesus Christ? So when it says God made man in his image, we were made in the image of the creator, Jesus Christ. So if you've ever wondered why it was Jesus who came to earth and not the Father or the Holy Spirit, now you know. You see, it was Christ's image, the one who the book of Hebrews says is the express image and glory of God. Now, he's the one who came to save us. What from? Was his sin had defaced his image. It was his image that needed to be rebuilt in us. Have you ever noticed that over and over again in the New Testament, those of you who've become Christians, the word says you are being rebuilt in his likeness. The older you get in Christ, the more you should begin resembling him. And he's going to complete that in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, just a word of warning here before we finish with one bit of encouragement. Do you realize the same God who had the right to say, there's the line on the ground. That's my tree. I've given you every other tree. Don't be, don't be greedy. Um, that tree is very good, by the way, because it'll remind you that I have the power and the authority. That same God who made the heavens and made the earth also warned us when he was here, there is a real hell 
there is a real eternity of judgment because if you refuse to ask this Christ to take your judgment on the cross, the judgment for sin, you can't pay for it. I can't pay for it. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. We're all sinners. We need this Jesus Christ. But if you refuse his offer over and over again, there's a real hell, a place of fire for eternity. You will be condemned. If you don't let him bear your sin, you will bear it yourself and you have eternity to regret it. Those of you who do trust Christ, can I encourage you in one way? You're worried about the weather, about the COVID, about everything. Your God is greater than any of that. Your God can actually get you right through this as a witness to the end. And if one day, like Paul, you get thrown into jail, remember the jailer needs the gospel just like everybody else. To make sure this Jesus who saved you, who sent you for a purpose, remember to let him take you day by day. It's a wonderful time to remember heavens, uh, the new heavens and new earth, because that's what we're really looking forward to. And that's why Jesus came. And I'm going to hand back to Joseph now because he's got a special scientific uh, bit that the Lord's enabled us to find rocks that cry out his praises, particularly about Easter. And for those of you who are still tempted to believe God used millions of years of evolution, then listen carefully. I'm going to get some uh, pretty pictures up on the screen now, starting with a Bible verse. Um, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ. Philippians 2 verse 5. You see, our challenge for you all today is to start seeing things God's way. I mean, we talked uh, earlier about our new documentary, Fire and Ice, and that's if you could really sum it up, that's a, a really good way of doing it, that Bible verse. Our challenge to you in this documentary is start seeing the real history of climate. Start seeing climate history God's way, starting with the Bible. And really, that's the message that we should be uh, using in evangelism. That's the message that we should be using when we're reaching people. That's the message we should be listening as well. Start seeing things God's way. Make sure that the mind which is in Christ is in you. Start seeing things God's way and it will open up a whole new world of wonderful connections that you may have never even seen before. Now, we've um, been in lockdown for a while now in the UK, but we had the privilege of being able to go up to uh, Northumberland a few weeks back and uh, look at our fantastic fossil tree that we found there. Um, it's a, a polystrate tree. That means it is protruding up through many layers. Very wonderful evidence of real rapid fossilization and rapid burial. Um, here's some of the other fossils. You can see the wonderful horsetail there. By the way, today they're absolutely tiny. They're sort of uh, that tall on average. They're sort of a, a meter tall at the absolute most. They're tiny little flimsy things. But here is a wonderful wonderful, great big, thick piece. Um, here's some more fossils, more of the horsetails there, some wonderful uh, sort of cone-like structures that are sort of part of the ends of these uh, lycopod fossils, wonderful, beautiful fossils, including this one here. Hey, can you see that there? Can you see the thorn? See, I got very excited when I uh, when I first found this. I've actually got the fossil with me here tonight. Let's see if I can hold it up to the camera and get it into focus so you can see it in the light. There we go. Can you see it there? Um, you see the little... Uh get it right there we go you see the little thorn just there absolutely beautiful wonderful thorn we're pretty sure that this is belongs to a seed fern called neuropterus um which we found all around the world in fact john mckay and myself we've been having a little bit of a a, a a challenge a sort of a competition to find who can find the most thorns around the planet and by the way john um 
I've just equalized with this one. So you need to get on your game and start finding more um, because they are really rather spectacular little things and a wonderful fossil form there. Um, okay, what does this actually show? Remember our challenge? Start seeing things God's way. Um, that means that these rocks, which are supposed to be carboniferous, uh, carboniferous, by the way, simply refers to the fact that they have lots of coal in them, um, they're not 318 million years old in the slightest. In fact, they're less than 10,000 years old, according to the Bible. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I mean, what have these fossils got anything to do with Easter? Um, what have they got to do with Jesus Christ? And what do they have to do with evolution? Well, let's start by giving you the evolutionary story of how thorns supposedly evolved. The idea is, you see down in the bottom there, uh, you start off with a soft, squidgy plant like seaweed. Oh, by the way, it's really important to remember that evolution says you start down here and you build your way up. You start very simple and you build your way up from single-celled creatures all the way up to high school professors. Um, seaweed all by itself evolved into ferns. Ferns all by themselves evolved flowers and then flowers being the soft and tender things that they are and love to be eaten by by uh, you know the goats and the sheep and whatnot, they also went on to evolve thorns as a protection. Of course, if you've worked with uh, animals, yeah, like sheep and goats and uh, so on and so forth, you know that thorns do very little to deter them from trying to get to the plants at all. But that's your evolutionary origin of thorns according to secular science. Here's your uh, biblical perspective. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, Then God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. First point first, everything was very good when God created it. I mean, John's just dealt with that earlier tonight, and we've even discussed what good actually meant. Um, skip forward to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind. Then God said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, the ground is cursed for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. I hope you understand that the Bible is not just a record of God's dealings with mankind in terms of New Testament Jesus Christ coming redemption, because it is that, but it's so much more. It's not just the history of God's redemptive power, it's the history of the entire universe and God's entire dealings with mankind from day one. And it includes a history of thorns. Hmm, interesting. Okay, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. Ah, make sure you get a biblical perspective. Um, what's the real difference? Well, in the beginning, everything was very good. The original created kind of the rose had no thorns in the slightest. After the curse, things became thorny. Um, oh, by the way, this is definitely change. Thorns didn't used to have uh, roses didn't used to have thorns, now they do. But it's not actually evolution. Remember our evolutionary diagram? You start down the bottom and all by itself, things evolve upwards until they need to evolve thorns in order to protect themselves, supposedly. Um, no, the Bible says that they actually started with no thorns and they ended up with thorns. And what's interesting is if you look into the botanical explanation behind thorns, they are all as a result of devolution, of a downhill trend, whether it's a mutation that has caused the leaf to shrink 
sink. So the sharp uh, sort of uh, tubes which send water to the leaves and send sugars back. So have sort of stuck out. They're made of glass, by the way, silica. So you end up with these thorns sticking out or whether they're failed um, leaf or, or, or branch stems, which have ended up being really sharp and spiky like the blackthorn in the UK, uh, or whether they're actually a mutation which has caused the plant to physically grow a sharp pointy thing out of it. Um, it really doesn't matter what the botanical explanation of it is, whether it's a thorn or a prickle or a spike. The biblical point is, if it's sharp and pointy and is a result of a devolution, it is a thorn. Thorns and thistles shall come, and guess what? Um, that Northumberland site where we found this wonderful thorn is not the only place in the world that we have actually discovered them. Um, this was creation research's first ever fossil thorn that John Mackay found way back in 2006-2007. Um, hey, you can't get much clearer than that, can you? Beautiful fossil thorns nasty vicious thing when it was alive for sure and then we've also found them in carthage in tennessee you can see john there um digging up some uh, wordful rocks and fossils these by the way are ordovician rocks these are supposed to be 450 million years old now of course i couldn't let john get all the glory at this site so i visited there um i've visited there twice now this particular time was in january 2020 you can see us with our geologist there geologist bob powell who's a, a local tennessee geologist professional geologist and uh, he's the one who confirmed for us that these rocks were really classified as ordovician um and now that becomes important because look what we started finding hey can you see the brown things they're the plants by the way oh plants are important because um well, plants weren't supposed to have evolved in the Ordovician, but that's a side point we'll come on to that in a moment but more importantly can you see the spiky things can you see the thorns um there's john you can see them all sort of sitting there in a row get up nice and close they've definitely got spiky things on them they're definitely thorns the point these rocks formed after adam sinned according to the bible they're not 450 million years old in the slightest now that's important because here's another example from uh, up in canada um this is a sordonia fossil these are supposed to be devonian claimed to be 350 million years old from canada and they are exactly the same as the fossil plants with the thorns that we are finding down in tennessee in the ordovician rocks you see all the thorns interesting Okay, here's your geological column. Um, it's uh, based off of an idea that sediments form from bottom to top, which is a false idea to begin with. Uh, but it's interesting the way that it's become developed over the years. You can see all the names there. And the idea is that these represent the history of life on Earth, from starting way down at the bottom all the way to the top, um, nearly a billion years worth of history. Okay, that's where those Canadian thorns were found, supposedly one of the first land plants to evolve. Um, by the way, our thorns in Tennessee are a world record. Uh, they have never been described anywhere else in Ordovician rocks. Oh, and by the way, we definitely know these are Ordovician rocks um, because of the official classification of them that... Um, our geologist Bob Powell uh, declared, but it's interesting we've also actually checked out that these are definitely Sordonia as well. Because you see, the problem is we found wonderful land plants in this Ordovician rock, but they weren't supposed to evolve for another 40 million years. 
wow, these are out-of-place fossils. They really shouldn't be there, according to the theory of evolution. Um, we took it to the world expert in fossil thorns in Canada, and he confirmed them for us. Absolutely, these are Sordonia. There's no doubt about it. But when we told him that they were found in Ordovician rocks, he said, oh, that's absolutely impossible no way that they could possibly be in Ordovician rocks because they didn't evolve for another 40 million years. So we go back to Tennessee, we check with the geologists there, oh they're definitely Ordovician rocks, we're not going to change our mind about that. So um, one thing it does show is that the ideas about the ages of the rocks uh, really come down to local interpretation and which theory is most popular at the time, but regardless of that, what is the actual biblical point to this? Um, there it is. Regardless of how old you want to make these, regardless of what kind of rock you want to make these, whether they're Devonian or Ordovician, by the way, both of those names, Devonian and Ordovician, have got nothing to do with millions of years in of themselves. They're just named after places in the UK. Devonian was named after Devon. Ordovician was named after the Ordovici tribe, which used to live in South Wales. Hmm interesting where these names come from but the point is we've now found these fossil thorns not only in the devonian we've also found them in the ordovician as well ah and what about these ones the first ever fossil thorns found by creation research they were found in canada in 2007 um beautiful fossil thorns there they are there's where the coal bed is there's the fossil find um ah this is carboniferous Hang on a minute. Carboniferous is supposed to be 345 to 280 million years old. The same rock sequence, by the way, as the one that we found in Northumberland. In fact, if you didn't know better, because uh, I knew that I drove there, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between these rock deposits and the ones in Canada and the ones in Tennessee and Spencer uh, and the ones in Newcastle and Australia. They're almost identical with the same vertical fossil trees running through them. Hey, this is a worldwide flood, a very, very, very big deposit indeed. Um, hang on a minute. Carboniferous rocks also formed after Adam sinned, according to the Bible, because they contain fossil thorns. In other words, the Carboniferous in Nova Scotia, just like the Carboniferous in the UK, is less than 10,000 years old, according to the Bible. You see, we've not just found the fossil thorns in the Ordovician and the Devonian, we've found them in the Carboniferous. Oh, that's Pennsylvania and Mississippian for our friends in the USA. Um, in fact, we've found them all the way up and down from the Permian, the Carboniferous, from the Cretaceous. We've found them in three different continents, in different countries around the world, and they all prove one thing. They all formed after Adam sinned. Hmm. Make sure that you have a biblical perspective. These rocks formed after Adam sinned, according to the Bible. But what on earth has that got to do with Easter? What on earth has that got to do with Jesus Christ? Well, John's touched on it, and I wonder if you've seen the connection before, because the Bible talks about thorns and thistles in quite a few places. It doesn't just talk about um, the fact that they are a result of mankind's sin. It doesn't just talk about the fact that they are part of the curse and they are not a good thing. It doesn't just talk about the fact that they have changed from no thorns to thorny plants, but that's not evolution, that's a downhill trend. Um, what are we celebrating this time of year? Jesus Christ coming to die for us. And he wore a crown of thorns. Hey, John mentioned that just earlier, didn't he? Jesus Christ 
wore a crown of thorns. He was wearing a representation of the very thing which he had come to break the grip of. The curse. Death. Because follow the logic through, um, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. In fact, it was sin that brought thorns and thistles onto the planet in the first place. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all die and all suffer the effects of the curse, including thorns and thistles. That was a promise that God gave to Adam. Hmm. What did Jesus Christ come to do? He came to break the grip of death. He came to save the world from its sin. And he came to give us everlasting life. Make sure you're actually joining the dots together here. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and short and fall of the glory of God. Therefore, all die. But what would it take to actually break the grip of the curse, break the grip of death? Well, you would actually need to have somebody who was a complete completely sinless why well if you're a sinner then you can't pay for anybody else's sins other than yourself moses was a great example of this i mean he'd just come down from mount sinai and he'd seen the children of israel worshiping a golden calf and he smashed the ten commandments out of anger and he went back up to mount sinai and he begged god he said lord do not take out your anger on the children of israel put the blame on me take my life instead Wow, that's a fantastic offer for Moses there. But you know what? God had to reject his offer. The reason? Moses was already a sinner. He'd already killed a man and he'd murdered someone. Hmm. Moses was a sinner. And so he could not pay for anybody else's sin other than his own. The wages of sin is death and Moses had to die for his sin. So in order to actually uh, break the grip of death, you need to have somebody who's sinless. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all die. But if God incarnate came to the earth, lived a completely sinless life and died on a cross, wearing a representation of the curse that he is now dying for, um, hmm, he's not paying for his own sin. He's paying for somebody else's, yours and mine. He's breaking the grip of death. He's breaking the curse. And he's wearing that visual representation of it bloodshed, killing, death and thorns, all seen in Jesus Christ. Let's uh, take it to the other side. We started with the beginning of thorns. Let's take it right to the end. Revelation chapter 22, and there shall be no more curse. This is the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. There will be no bloodshed. There will be no killing. There will be no death. There will be no thorns because the curse has been broken. And you know what? I'm very much looking forward to it. I mean, I'm a gardener and I love uh, doing the gardening, except for when it comes to thorns. I mean, I'm a fairly young man, but my back hurts a lot. I don't feel particularly well a lot of the time. And I need a new body already. And I'm hardly started in this world. Hey, I'm looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth where everything shall be very good and the lion will lay down with the wolf and the lamb and they'll all be there together and there will be no death, there will be no bloodshed and that is the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Why do we need Jesus? Well, because we're all sinner. 
that goes back to Genesis as well. That's the connection between the thorns. That's the connection between Jesus Christ. That's the connection that John makes in his gospel when he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and all things were made by the word. And by the way, this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and his name is Jesus Christ. You see the dots? You see how they're joined together? Make sure you have a full perspective um, of the world's history. Make sure you start seeing things God's way. And make sure that you let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Well, there we go. I hope you enjoyed our slightly different creation conversations this week as we had a look at who Jesus Christ was, what it meant to worship him, and also, perhaps most importantly, what's the connection between the creation, the resurrection, and the new heavens and the new earth. A reminder, we have, I think it's like about six different programs that we put out on Facebook for Easter 2020. Really, really great content. It was originally designed to be an entire Easter conference. Well, John's away actually doing that Easter conference for the first time in three years. So we weren't able to do it in 2020, but we were able to put that content out there for you to watch. So it's on our Facebook, not our YouTube. We did try sort of downloading it, but it was didn't really quite work because it went out as a live video on Facebook so it's perfectly good to watch uh, but go to Facebook go and watch that it contains several short videos several more in-depth sermons from both John and myself um, a reminder to be back with Creation Conversations next week. Yes, we will be live as normal once again. We've got some great guests lined up for you and we'll be doing a Q&A special soon. So keep those questions coming in and we will see you next time. Goodbye and God bless. <laughs>